Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. This is part two of my conversation with Tim Grant. Tim was recently head of Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Galaxy. In this role, Tim oversaw the expansion of the firm's presence in EMEA across all business lines, including trading, sales and research, asset management, principal investments, investment banking, and mining. Upon finishing recording our first chat, Tim and I agreed we would do another episode, this time to really dive deep into his insights about the digital asset space. With the benefits of his vantage point and eight years spent building and selling the technology to global financial institutions. In particular, we wanted to mark this inflection point in the industry that is forcing so many participants to dig deep into their own convictions and motivations away from speculative use cases and towards mainstream adoption. In this piece, we ask ourselves whether the divergence in regulatory policy applicable to digital assets across various jurisdictions might lead to a bifurcation of the investment thesis and innovation focus between the US and the rest of the world. We draw parallels with the emergence of electronic payments and telecom regulations divergence between Europe and the US in the 90s led to vastly different development paths for those industries across the two continents. We ponder how the stature and importance of the dollar as a reserve currency might be further challenged by other jurisdictions' more constructive approaches to creating a supportive framework for digital assets, innovation, and adoption. I hope you enjoy the second part of our conversation. Tim, it's great to have you for part deux, as we say in French, and this is a little bit of a new one. So what we're going to do today is what I wanted to get your thoughts on is from your vantage point, sitting primarily in Europe, you have a unique vantage point in looking at the confluence of decision-making and views on digital assets and crypto as a whole. I know that for those of us who are sitting stateside, there's been a lot of FUD and just a lot of over-focusing on regulatory matters, but also some progress. We see the BlackRock announcement was very uplifting. We're seeing the asset class as a whole rallying, presumably on the back end of that. But what's really interesting to me is to try to get your thoughts on what is the state of the world when it comes to crypto? Ooh, that's a big old question. And yes, great to be back. Thank you, Maxime. It's good to be part for la deuxième partie. And I really enjoyed the last one. So I'm looking forward to this one. So yeah, the state of crypto, I mean, in many respects, being Galaxy and being such a major player in the space and also being across the globe and also being in multiple kind of different segments of the business. You know, we're in trading, we're in asset management, we're in banking, we're in venture, we're in mining, we're in now with our GKA acquisition, we're in custody technology, we're in tokenization. We see a bit of everything. We're and then top to bottom, we're institutional, high net worth, and but also with DeFi. We're we're active in many different ways in the DeFi world. So I think we should have a view of what the state of crypto is today. And my view of that will be colored by what we're experiencing as a company. What is What does crypto now mean for us, Galaxy, as a company strategically? What decisions do we talk about at the management committee week in, week out? And I think it's fascinating, actually, if you think back a bit, and you go back to the beginning and you see the trajectory of the different jurisdictions around the world. Arguably, 
Asia was one of the first to come through and look like it was leading the charge. And then things changed dramatically a couple of years ago when China did a vault fast and pulled the plug on mining and crypto in general. And then, oh my word, Hong Kong's back in the game. And now they are, the word is, according to recent reports, that the big banks are being encouraged to bank crypto players. And that's a bit of a roller coaster that they've experienced. Fortunately, it has a positive ending as of today. Now you go back to the US and the US is the birthplace of Coinbase. It's, it's the biggest listed crypto player out there. It's an important bellwether for our world. And I think until relatively recently, you wouldn't have said that the US was particularly negative. You might have had the argument around the US not having its ducks lined up from a regulatory perspective, but hey, show me a regulator that really is all the way through. Some are further than others, but you wouldn't have really been massively negative about it, I don't think. And my, how that's changed. The SEC and others, but primarily the SEC, have really made this a challenging path for everyone and such a challenging path that as a galaxy and as many other companies will tell you, you have to start seriously thinking about whether you can and should operate in that jurisdiction, the world's biggest economy. That's a pretty seismic situation. It's actually, I think many have commented on this, that it's amazing that crypto has held up with that backdrop, but maybe that's telling you something actually. And so here we are with the US barreling up and looking very strong and now looking like it's very weak in this space. Now compare that to the European dynamic. It's been much, much more steady with the possible exception of the UK FCA and its crypto ban on its specific ban on Bitcoin ETPs, which we are hopeful will be overturned in relatively short order. It's not been negative, the space massively. There's been the odd thing here and there, but same with Europe, mainland Europe. Its trajectory has just been slow and people always said that, but it's been steady. And here we are, it's a bit of a tortoise and hare thing. Here we are, and the tortoise is kind of looking like it's emerging as a quite a good one to bet on. The UK with A16Z making their statement of intent at the beginning of last week, which you don't make that sort of statement in the Financial Times when, if you don't have the backing of the government, and the government is behind it. Our sources tell us that Rishi Sunak is the, you know, the PM is going to be leveraging a support for Web3 in his campaign for re-election. That's a really significant piece of news. And you know that A16s, very smart people over at Anderson Horowitz, they would know that. And we know that there's been direct connectivity with the UK government. And so there's a real sense here in London, where I'm sitting right now, that there's hope for London to genuinely become the crypto hub just over a year ago. Rishi and his team sort of announced they wanted to be when he was then chancellor. So the UK is looking strong, and I suspect you're going to see a lot more players set up shop here. And in the Europe, it's just been slow and steady. Mika's coming. Mika's been coming for a while, and it's still coming. It's going to be maybe next year. Harmonized legislation across the entire block. And then you've got the Middle East, which is really leaning in and has been for a while. But Abu Dhabi's now really woken up to this. And that's one of the biggest pools of capital in the world, people I think underestimate, if you don't really know, you underestimate how material that 
money, that capital, and therefore that influence is going to be in the coming years. And they're really leaning into this. We've seen this directly ourselves and with other players who've moved there. So what you have is a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to our trajectory. And the macro overlay obviously isn't helpful. But I will say the state of crypto today, where from where I'm sitting, is one of cautious optimism. And the caution is just a timing question. The caution is just, when will we see inflation get under control? When will we see the rate cycle truly begin to turn? And we feel, and will we have recessions or not? But when we're at the other end of this, the distinct feeling here in Europe anyway, and the Middle East, and I think this is true in Hong Kong as well, and APAC, is that the money is going to be there to flow into this space. And that's really what we need. We don't need, there's an interesting article I read this morning actually about, do we need more retail money in this space? And I think the answer is, I would say we really need institutional money. There's nothing bad about having more retail money, but we don't need this to be a retail-driven market. We want this to be a fully functioning retail and institutional market. And I think the betting is, and alongside BlackRock's announcement, which I think I agree with you, is has to be taken positively regardless of this actually gets through. And the, the Deutsche Bank statement of intent a few days ago, which they're going to get involved in, they're going for a custody license. You know, things like that, those sorts of announcements, and they keep coming in the background, and they will keep coming, give you confidence that institutional wave will be upon us and will drive the institutionalization of this market, will drive derivatives market growth, which is essential, will drive structured products growth as a means of access to payoff structures in this space for wealth management and brokerage clients, et cetera, et cetera. It will drive this. It will drive large sovereign wealth funds and pension funds to buy Bitcoin if BlackRock's ETF and other ETFs are finally allowed to go forward. And all of that is a very encouraging sort of lighthouse somewhere in the distance. And the big question is, do you have the gas in the tank? Do you have what it takes in terms of capital, in terms of the people, in terms of the smarts, in terms of the relationships in the marketplace to survive long enough to get to the lighthouse and have that moment happen. So I think that's a decent high level kind of state of crypto view from where I'm sitting, Maxime. This is very, very comprehensive. Thank you for this. And it's not lost on anyone in the space. I mean, you see Pantera today just put out a a pretty comprehensive view on Hong Kong as a crypto hub. You just see the narrative sort of shifting and to try to cater to what is an emerging trend clearly over the last, say, nine months there, the evolution. That's the result of policy decision-making over there and strategic positioning. You talked about the UK, you talked about in the Middle East. A few things to unpack here. One is the stability in prices on some level. I mean, people have been complaining about a dearth of volumes, but prices are holding. You think about the analogy to fiat being really supported by the fact that ultimately you need to pay taxes with fiat. The same thing is we now have a much more significant crypto-powered infrastructure. When I think about ETH and other layer two tokens, really powering an infrastructure that is live, enabling applications and services, that fuel that goes into this infrastructure needs to be purchased and is maintained floor there from that demand. What's interesting also is to think about how jurisdiction-specific policymaking 
is going to have long-term consequences as to where the innovation goes. And let me be more specific. If you have a situation where, because there are really two aspects to the crypto space as a whole, right? There's as an application enabling use case, and there's also financialization, right? And, and hence asset price and asset price dynamic within that sector. But if we think about what could potentially happen given the bifurcation of the regulatory regimes is something where in the US you might actually have much more of a focus on infrastructure, application development, really use cases, whilst the rest of the world continues down the path with much more of a financialization focus. And both are valid and necessary. But I wonder what your thoughts are, because in as much as you are a financial institution, does it mean that geographically you shift your focus more towards, let's say, merchant banking in the space in the US and much more of a trading house type business in the rest of the world? Yeah, this is a wonderfully rich topic, actually. Let's start where you started, which is on the kind of need for the fuel, like the need for the asset, the demand for these these assets, because they have utility and they're seen as powering the next generation of infrastructure. And look, we've been saying it for a while here at Galaxy, really since we got to the tail end of last year, it felt like a lot of the leverage which was in the system came out of the system by the end of the year and anything that was left in there is probably out now. What that means is you've really got a bunch of unlevered players and unlevered money in this asset class at the moment. And that's a really fascinating place for an asset class to be. It's very unusual for an asset class to be in that kind of state. And it's just an odd artifact of the unusual way in which this asset class has come into being, that it was retail first, and now it's becoming institutionalized, not the other way around. And I think you're right in the way that the regulatory regimes have panned out over the last 13 years. And so here we are with an unlevered asset class or unlevered money in an asset class. And what can only, really, you can only describe as a very clear global trajectory. And with regulators, whether they like it or not, I think a lot of regulators really do get this actually. And, and it's difficult for me to swallow tarring them all with the same brush with the, as the SEC, which really gets its special mention for frankly being, I think, unreasonable in just about every way you can think about it when it comes to this asset class. And the rest of the world, I think, in the, from a regulatory perspective and the financial services perspective, and even big players like Microsoft and Google and, and the entertainment industry, they're all realizing that this infrastructure, this tokenization, digital assets of the gaming industry too, metaverse, Web3, all the terms that you throw in and now with AI, which definitively I think is a wonderful bedfellow with digital asset, blockchain, crypto world that we're in. Like it's, it, They're realizing that this is an inevitable part of the future. It's a wonderful moment. It's almost like a reset moment. And therefore there is this demand. There is this, yeah, this stuff does have utility for those that really still, after all these years, will argue. And I've been in some meetings literally weeks ago where Oh, well, Bitcoin has no value. Well, that's such a lame argument at this point with so much evidence kind of to support that that's simply not the case. 
legitimately does have value by definition. And then you go from ETH down the spectrum. Like the reality of value is now landing, I think, in the collective consciousness, or is beginning to on a mass, on more of a mass scale. And it's not to say that we don't have a long way to go, but it really is starting to seep in. So that's a really interesting point from a price point, because that's where you started, like 25, 30K Bitcoin. In many respects, the only way is up. People aren't going to sell because people believe in this. And so when we get that institutional money coming in, it's going to go one way. And how long it takes and how far it goes is the big question we're all going to wait and find out for. But it is. So that's just to pick up on your first point. Now, your second point, I think this is a very live debate for all of us in the space. And this SEC activity and the broader activity in the US, which just feel Operation Charcoal 2.0 or whatever we might call it, this just this slamming of the brakes, this desire to not see things move forward. Is it going to result in the US becoming uncompetitive? Now, your take on it was interesting. It's like, is it going to result in the US focusing on different aspects of this than other jurisdictions? And my my gut says it it doesn't. And just to be specific, what I mean is it doesn't necessarily bifurcate. I think it just slows the US down. And just how much it slows it down is, is remains to be seen. But it will slow it down. It will lose ground to other jurisdictions around the world at a really crucial moment. And you could be right, though, in the sense that if it's regulated tokenization of securities, then maybe that works in the US because that's sort of palatable to that jurisdiction in theory. But I don't know. I think when you drive out, I don't think it's so easy to bifurcate the space in a way. Like We're all bound up in the same stuff. We do all of this here at Galaxy. And yes, some people specialize, but we're all part of the same movement. The talent will move. The, the businesses will move. They have to. This is a live conversation here at Galaxy. Should we be moving our people around the world? And Mike, our CEO, Mike Novogratz, has said publicly already that we need to focus on expanding offshore. And that is kind of what we're in the process of figuring out. And so the US will slow down and the rest of the world has a chance to push ahead. And I certainly feel that here in London and in other capitals of Europe and in the Middle East, that when they look at what's going on in the US, when you get beyond the, oh my word, why would you do it this way? Regulation by enforcement was never a good idea. You immediately get to, well, great, if you guys are going to do that, then we're going to steam on and do it in a smart way. And we're going to to catch the wind here and we're going to get ahead of you guys. Now, the debate I had literally a few days ago was, well, does that really leave the US behind forever? And my assertion is, in the words of our chairman, Michael Daffy, an extraordinary man, formerly on the management committee at Goldman Sachs until quite recently, the US is a beast. You cannot ignore, I was just flying over the US earlier this week, actually, and I was just sort of reminded of the vastness of it. And just it's a consumer animal and you just can't ignore its size. And no matter what you say about the other big jurisdictions like China catching up, it just isn't in the time scale that matters for this conversation, it's not going to change. So I don't really buy that in the end, it makes a huge difference to the US. I think the US will be able to catch up and steam ahead with the right approach in due course, but it is going to be a setback. And I actually like the underlying impetus that is being felt here in London and across EMEA and the rest of the world, which is great. Well, we'll kind of double down then. We'll speed up a bit. We'll put a bit more effort into it. We'll try and move a little bit faster, be a little bit smarter. 
because there's spoils to be taken on a time horizon measured in quarters to garner some real momentum and to garner to attract businesses and commerce and hopefully see the green shoots of the next Amazons and Googles and et cetera, et cetera, which you know, you want that to be outside of the US if you're outside of the US. So that's kind of the way I see it. I, I do want to make sure I kind of get to the core of a question, which is this idea of the bifurcation between infrastructure and financial services. And I maybe I'll just reflect what I said before. I think in the short run, yes. In the long run, no. It's interesting to see Bank of New York be so prominent in the space, even though they're in the US and they are, and BlackRock, clearly US-based, being quite prominent in the news of late. Yeah, I think that's telling you something that they, they're as connected into the dynamic on Capitol Hill in, in Washington as anyone else. And they don't seem to be pulling back materially. And maybe that's the underlying headline of all of this volatility and short-term uncertainty. But you might be right. If I'm a financial services player like a Galaxy, then, you know, I have to think about putting my operations outside of the US for the time being. And I think the US will regret it, but it, in the end, it will catch up. Now, I, um, yeah, the reason I brought that point up is I do think that whilst we evolve, we can go back to prior eras of technological disruptions. And in particular, the timeline and the history around how standards and policy are being affected. And there are really two comparisons that I always hold in mind, and this might date both of us, but it's just a function of our generation, is going back to the modernization of telecom networks in the 90s and early 2000s, as well as payment networks. And what you tend to see time and again is that bifurcation between specifically Europe, and now we obviously have a much bigger third player, which is Asia and the influence of China. This is a separate matter. But in terms of really laying the groundwork for what the rules of the game are, Europe traditionally has been a lot more prescriptive and more rules-oriented, right? It's almost like this Napoleon mindset of codifying everything that I think is pretty pervasive, especially in continental Europe. And I do think there's a legacy there in terms of like the psyche of how policymakers think about it. And when they sit down with industry leaders and trying to set the framework, I mean, if you think about how also like Brussels work, right, in terms of trying to be overly prescriptive and creating the rules, which is a completely different mindset than it is in the more common law psyche of Britain, Great Britain, and the US, whereby back in the advent of modern wireless telecom, you had a bifurcation of standards for that reason. Because I think in Europe, you had a much more concerted effort to try to, even though it was slow, to try to get ahead of the complexity of what it meant to have infrastructure being built out and ensure interoperability ensure that we knew exactly what the regulatory framework would look like, what kind of technologies would be endorsed. And then it actually enabled the key players and vendors in the space to build out because they knew what the rules of the game were, right? And I do believe that this is as important 
if not more, right? We're really talking about multiple layers all the way down to the infrastructure, all the way up to end user services that is as important as the underlying telecom wireless infrastructure, right? I mean, and so again, having that blueprint being defined up front so that all the participants and stakeholders can optimize their function according to those rules, I think leads to initially at least more confident innovation. And so to your point, I think it will result in, on some level, Europe and the rest of the world where such efforts are being pursued to be a little bit ahead of the game versus the US. Now in the US, again, to your point of not underestimating the beast, you know, greed and innovation and the seeking profit will drive a different type of pursuit. And so that was my point there. I do think that ultimately we see a somewhat different way of optimizing for the rule set here in the US that will result in different parts of the ecosystem being optimized for. Now, and the next question that I have is, as we think about not only the narrative, but the tangible benefits that need to be touted and how to start migrating away from, I would call it the legacy narrative, and I'll get a lot of heat from the traditionalists in the space for this, but how do you articulate the value on a going forward basis, right? In a message that is clearly understood and conveys real value. I think along three threads. One is, and I was having a conversation with one of the infrastructure founders recently around this, and he brought up an interesting point, which was really at the heart of it is an amazing cost story, right? And what he meant by that, my interpretation was that, and I don't know that it's been articulated in a simple enough manner, which is we now, for the first time, through this technology, have the ability to start redistributing in much more fair manner the rent that is extracted by centralized nodes that are entrusted with verifying information. And that is very powerful, right? Because it means that not only can we start saving on the cost that we confer to these centralized nodes, right? And this applies to finance that you and I know. It applies to other industries as well how this gets redistributed away to either other businesses, but also to the end user, right? And that's a fundamental paradigm shift. And it is at heart a cost story, right, at the infrastructure level. The other thing is by giving people more control over their information and their finances, right, it does empower them to essentially take a bigger share of the pie that's being generated, right? And so, again, from a end user consumer enablement and and enrichment at the end of the day, it's a compelling value proposition. Now, I'm saying this and it sounds very nebulous and abstract. The challenge is how do you convey this? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you guys strategically think about that. Yeah. For someone like me who's been in this space for a while, that doesn't sound nebulous at all. It's the reason we are doing this and it's massively compelling. But you're right that it's been, it remains to some extent challenging for us in this space to really convey the significance of the tool, the new tool set that we have to get a better future, better in an inverted commas, what does better really mean? And we kind of talked about this on the last show, which was the idea of this is 
the why. Well, this is because we want a better future for governments, corporations, and individuals. And better is defined by more democratic asset access to things and rent not being taken by people and you know, fattened intermediaries just not existing because they're leeching off value that accrues to all of us one way or another. And it accrues to the evolution of society and the speed with which it can evolve and therefore solve problems and, and bring us all to a better place, the rising tide lifts all ship kind of argument. Now, there's, I've tried over the years to find a couple of analogies and stories and one that I might invoke now and I don't know, you might have to tell me, Maxime, if I brought this out last time. Did I talk about the Casablanca principle last time? I think you did. I believe you did. Yep. Yeah, I did. Right. So that's the core. I, so I won't go through it all. But basically, the idea is like the significance of the move from Blu-ray to streaming in music and film and visual arts. Like That's way bigger than any medium change we've ever had historically. Now, that's true on a broader scale now with this technology. And it's actually going to affect the same industry. Like there's another step beyond Blu-ray to streaming. There's streaming to your know, native digital assets and how that will affect the same music and entertainment space. But let's go back to financial services. The move to this new paradigm with these new tools is going to be as meaningful and going to be seismic enough to check to redraw the lines within financial services. And it's going to enable new players to thrive new products and services to be delivered, and it should get us to that better place. And you know, that's all part of the same story. It's just like, you've got to understand at a philosophical level, at a momentum-driven level, at a societal level, this, this really changes things and has the potential to. And I think now we're beyond the point of no return. We're beyond the point of needing that to be proven by anything in particular, because there's enough out there to already demonstrate this. It's just how quickly we choose as a society to embrace this. And with all the headwinds we mentioned before, like we've just got to chop the wood. So I think the underlying thesis, if you're at Galaxy and you own the Galaxy stock, is that the way that we trade, the assets that we trade, the way that we distribute financial products, the way that we raise capital, and that has real implications, the way you raise capital, the way companies raise capital from the smallest to the largest is about to be rationalized and allow this to happen in a more f and with less friction that the infrastructure is going to start to be over time morphed from the 20th century model that we've come from to this new 21st century model which you'd hope by the time we get into the 30s will just be non-negotiable for anybody because it will already be there we're not quite there yet i don't think it's fair to say that we're there but but we're not far off, though. It's not measured in court in decades. It's measured in years that we get to this point where we can say, oh, that's the 21st century model. And everything we had in the first quarter of the century was really the 20, 20th century model. Like that's the core, th that all of these things are going to happen. That's the core thesis of owning Galaxy because of all the different businesses we run. They, one way or another, support, promote, accelerate all of those things happening. And so that's sort of the world we live in. You have to have made that decision to work at Galaxy and at many other great shops around in our space. That's what's at stake. But the big question that you're kind of driving at is, well, how do we get everybody else to see that? How do we get everybody else to absorb that? Now, the thing that I find interesting over the last year or so now, because it started in the middle of last year when we were post the challenges of May with Luna, Terra, et cetera, et cetera, and, and then on it got worse with everything else that we don't need to 
retread that, you started to see a different discussion. It's in a bit, in a way, goes back to what your bifurcation that you described earlier. You started to focus a bit more on the infrastructure, a bit more on tokenization, a bit more on, you know, very specifically non-crypto things. And that actually maybe wasn't such a bad thing in some respects, because the artifact of that is that now, a year after that, you can see, we can see it from our vantage point, the number of projects, the number of big institutional players who've evolved their work, their commitment, their investment into that, into the modernization of capital markets, the tokenization of capital markets. It's been slow and steady, but very, very deliberate and very, very consistent. And that tells us that future state, that better future state, that less, more frictionless future state is starting to become a core belief. Now, again, you don't want to overegg the pudding. You don't want to say that everybody's totally in it and has committed to the change because that's not happened. But it's definitely more than the sort of previous regime, which was a lot more skeptical and took a long time to get anywhere. And that's it really encouraging when we want that narrative to land, that what's at stake narrative, that why are we even doing this narrative? It's like, it's no longer difficult to go into most evolved financial institutions and have a very grown up, very balanced, progressive discussion about what's going to happen next. They've gotten that far. So that's a really big piece of the puzzle. I think we also talked about last time that if technology and scaling of it was once seen as the big challenge and now isn't because we've scaled and there's still some of that, but you know, for the most part, I think we feel we can scale this technology now to cope with whatever it needs to do. And if regulation is on the right path, whereas it wasn't, now it is, certainly on aggregate globally, it's in the right path. Then the one thing that's interesting that it would be the thing left that we all need to get our heads around is the education element. It's having as many people buy into this. And why? Because the more people buy into this, the more impetus there will be for people to move to demand, not just expect, not just wait for, but to demand that better outcome that we all deserve as a society. And that I think we're in that phase now. And I think we enjoy the ability to go in and have those meaningful conversations. And it's with regulators and central banks and policymakers as well, with certain obvious exceptions, but that's all part of it. It's no longer seen as fanciful. It's no longer seen as as speculative on what might happen. It's, I think, starting to be seen as inevitable. And it still leaves a big question mark, like, how do you get there? We can make bad decisions, regulate badly, and bad actors can ruin the game, as we saw last year, in ways that can set us back. So the inevitability, I think, is there, but the pathway to getting there is not so obvious. And the speed with which we'll get there is not so obvious. But the end game, the beautiful end game that we'll write books about in the future and we'll talk about 50, 75 years from now when the next paradigm starts to come into place, when maybe it will be sooner than that with, every, with, the way, with the pace of change in the fourth industrial revolution that we're in. It could be that, that actually it's only 20 years away and we'll disrupt the whole thing again or creatively disrupt it again. I don't know. But I think we're, we'll want we're starting to see that form. We're starting to see what those textbooks will say. That, and then in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto came along and the story writes itself now. You can see where that goes. It's not hard to get your head around. And that's, that really helps what you're getting at. The recognition, the understanding, this really is a force for 
ultimately societal progress and economic growth. Well put. And it does beg the question, however, because this is very highly aspirational in nature, that there is potentially also at play because of how large the stakes are, a more cynical strategic game going on, right? Love to hear your thoughts on, look, in the US, I think if there is to be a path towards some baseline regulation being adopted, I think we're more likely to see it on the money market side, i.e. stable coins, i.e. tokenized deposits. I mean, essentially like the baseline plumbing where I think there is definitely appetite or at least room there to get something achieved from a policymaking standpoint. But what about the about face that we're seeing right now stemming from China on really just at least not, for I speak for myself here, not being intimate with the thinking there behind the curtain around this emphasis to start pushing in the opposite direction, right? In the last year, really, this about phase that coincides with what we're seeing here stateside. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts from a geopolitical standpoint, what do you think is really at play here, right? When we think about the baseline infrastructure of money markets. Well, it's, it's the old Seald uh, Occam's razor, isn't it? the most likely answer to why China has done this swift change is because they see it as a competitive advantage and they saw what was happening in the US and they thought, hmm, then we take advantage. And you know, the way you started with that was interesting because it's funny and, and it's unfortunately the likely outcome that a community of people a community of actors, I'll just say that in a very generic terms, whether it's people or governments or corporations, community of actors that on aggregate work well together to create a new outcome that's very commercial in its nature, then start to go adversarial at some point as people start to see the opportunity to one-up each other. Is that this very philosophical point to some extent? Is that how behavior will evolve and always, always will evolve? I don't know. But it's, from a geopolitical perspective, I think we might be seeing that play out. I alluded to it earlier in terms of some of the policymakers outside of the US seeing this as like, great, well, if they're going to slow down, we're going to speed up. But it does feel like, and look, the A in my title, EMEA, is, doesn't get talked about a lot in our space. Africa doesn't get talked about a lot. There is definitively crypto activity there for lots of good reasons. Various uh, jurisdictions there taking advantage of crypto. For this, just like some other jurisdictions in South America, for example, because they have unstable currencies and unstable regimes, and therefore it's important for the population to have access to value exchange in a democratic way. And that's definitely happening. And you've got a big user base down there, but it somehow doesn't quite make it into the common kind of everyday parlance and everyday dialogue in our space. And it probably should, because it gets back to your point. China cottoned onto this a while ago. And China's really trading materially with the African states and is really starting to entrench itself as the, for want of a better term, the, the super economic power of choice rather than the US. And that is a very classic Chinese long-term thinking move, right? They see the demographics in Africa. 
And if you choose to take a minute and look at it, you realize that there is this extraordinary kind of next decade upon us where a lot of very young, very capable and trained people will come out of that jurisdiction. It's the fastest growing population on the planet in Africa over the next decade. And therefore, its influence will undoubtedly grow. And it does have vast still amounts of natural resources to tap. Therefore, on a really grand global scale, Africa shouldn't be an afterthought in what we think about. And it certainly, therefore, shouldn't be an afterthought when we think about the financial infrastructure that powers the global economy. And I think this is to your point. I think China, A, has stolen a march on the rest of the world in Africa to some extent. The Middle East has gotten in on the act as well to some extent. You know, when I'm down in the Middle East, I do hear this a lot. And so there's an opportunity if you also choose to leverage these new technologies and tools in our space to gain more influence, to bring your currency and your financial might to get more leverage from it in that jurisdiction. And I think, look, we know, you know it was interesting to see that headline the other day about President Biden called Z a dictator and Z didn't like it. That's really, there's so much in that. It was rightly front page news. Like, well, it's so much more than just that headline when you really think about what that means. Does, is fascinating that Z doesn't want to be seen as one, but why when he actually is, right? Like, there's so much in there, but I'm no pundit when it comes to that. So I'll, I'll draw a line on it there. But it does go back to your point. Like, that's big, bold strategic moves from China. Now, they're going to be cut off though, right? It's going to be difficult to see how that really gets the momentum it needs to be for like, for instance, the Renminbi to come the, the global reserve currency. But, you know, it's statements like that. Sometimes you know, someone will trot this out 10 years from now and be like, look how stupid that sounded in 2023 when it becomes a reserve currency. And I think that maybe that's the core answer to your question is that there's a lot to play for. This is an extraordinary moment in history when there are geopolitical lines being redrawn, power is shifting. The Middle East is going to have outsized influence more than I think a lot of people recognize with the, how sophisticated they are and the sheer volume of reserves and capital that they have. We will look back on this 10, 20, 30 years from now and things will look different. And you alluded earlier, Maxime, to our advancing years because we were there when Web3 began and I was there when the crash of 2000, right? This is in my not just living memory, but my professional memory, a lot of these things. You look at what's happened in the last few years since the financial crisis and things are changing. It's not the same world that we're in. It's the political climate in the US has changed. The political climate across Europe and the UK has changed. I could go on and on. A lot has changed. So what does all of this mean? It means that when you've got this rich tool set that people, governments, decision makers, policymakers, strategists have the ability to look ahead and say, what can we do to get ahead in whatever way that means commercially, politically, global influence? And you know, maybe that's the sort of the good and the bad all rolled into one. This is great for humanity, but it's going to redraw lines and there'll be winners and losers. But like, I'm happy to see that maybe a lot of people, more people than ever are recognizing that reality, but we still have a way to go. But isn't it fascinating that we're even having this discussion? Look, there's a part of me that worries, right? Because when I hear you very clearly outlining the stakes, again, that we described, 
I take a step back, and this goes beyond, obviously, our conversation here about the digital asset space, but it is important in as much as, again, we're talking about a redrawing of A, the geopolitical map, and the financial plumbing that underpins, essentially, the balance of power in the world, right? And it is being redrawn. And if we think, and what I worry about, especially when I see just, in my opinion at least, a stance that is not approaching it from a strategic standpoint within the US, that we're having debates that are really missing the bigger picture of what's at stake here. I see China and the Middle East and Africa really, if you think about it, China's got slowing demographics, but an incredible intellectual property generation potential and an incredible consumption of natural resources. And then you've got Middle East and Africa, who are incredibly rich in two of the most important things, you know, when it comes to the balance of power in the world, resources, natural resources, still, I don't think we're going to see oil disappearing anytime soon, and demographics, right? To your point about Africa, but broadly to Middle East, Saudi Arabia is a great example. They've got a, a young, thriving demographic dynamic. And so if you think about that axis there of essentially economic interest, they have an incentive in really taking the lead in defining those broad trends and those broad infrastructure frameworks, especially when it comes to the infrastructure of money, because it allows for commerce and allows for the democratization or at least the propagation of financial services within their sphere of influence. And my fear is, I think that the principles of transparency and on some level, the democratic principles that are being upheld stateside are probably not front and center there. I think the agenda over there is much more one of pragmatic digital colonization on some level. And I'm going to go out of, of line here and, and use that term. But I truly think that it is. And I've talked about the missed opportunity for the U.S. to counter that by taking the lead on the crypto front to pursue the dollarization of financial services globally, right? We know the dollar, the fiat dollar, the physical dollar, literally dollar bill. I mean, I still have these images of footage of these trucks of dollar bills during the invasion of Iraq in 2003, right? You get a, a notion of how many dollar bills are out there floating in the world and stashed somewhere. The opportunity here is to really control that, right? And at some point, you sort of have to pick sides. I know it's a little bit hard when you straddle jurisdictions and different areas do business, but you do have to be mindful that's really what's at stake here, right? And technology really, if you think about those crates carrying physical dollars in the Iraqi desert, Again, very vivid image of this as a manifestation of that. Think about the digital representation of this and how pervasive it is and how controllable it can be. And if it's not the dollar, then it has to be an alternative, right? So I clearly see, again, those other spheres of influence trying to jostling for competitive advantage there, start to map the next generation Silk Road, trying to map those commerce routes, those flows of funds how you get into consumers' pockets on a global scale and start wielding a lot more financial influence. That is what's really at stake here with crypto, I think. And so something to keep... I love your digital colonization 
term actually and i'm totally gonna like rip that off because i think it's feel free to i think it's a tremendous point you make i think you made it really really well that is what it's at stake i love that term yep no absolutely so on that note i think look we've got a lot to be excited about a lot to worry about i'm always an optimistic person and i like to think that by optimizing and working with all the various stakeholders, it's voices in the industry, such as yours, such as your leadership and firms that really carry a voice and a place in the political discourse as well because of your influence in the space, that we can try to make sure that we're navigating it in the right direction. So I know there's a note of caution in the air right now when it comes to everything crypto, but you and I know from talking to stakeholders who are actually paying attention to what's going on talking to the innovators, talking to the entrepreneurs, in some corners, policymakers, that we will figure out the path forward. It's just going to be a different one than we might have anticipated, and we'll optimize around it. But I'm cautiously optimistic to your earlier point about where this is going. I think we are past the point of existential threat, certainly, very, very past that point. And I think it augurs for the best moving forward. Well, I'll agree with you on that point. And I think in many respects, the silver lining of a lot of what we've seen recently is that it does demonstrate we're past the point of no return and of existential threat, which should galvanize more people, more decision makers, more capital, more innovators, more entrepreneurs to drive this forward. And that's a wonderful thing. And then maybe I'll just finish on this last note, Maxime, to bring everything we talked about, which was a wonderful discussion. I appreciate it as ever. But back down to the reality of today in this moment with firms in this space, if you look at A16Z, you look at Coinbase, you look at Circle, and you look at Galaxy, I'm just going to choose those four, four of the most prominent and recognized names in the space, and many, many others. But those four, you know for a fact that all four of them are thinking very, very carefully about where they have to be way more than we thought we would have to six months ago. So here we are in the middle of 2023, having conversations we would never have conceived of. And that tells you how fast quick things are changing. That's a measure of how fluid this all is. And it goes back to the point of real strategic decisions will be made or are being made today about where to put resources, where to focus, where to build, where to engage, where to accelerate, where to bring the best of their people and their capabilities. And that's the major thing. That's a big thing for everyone to absorb and recognize and a good way to end it. So Maxime, as always, I really thank you and really look forward to hopefully being able to do this once again somewhere down the road, my friend. Likewise. Thank you so much for your insights as always. And it's always a pleasure chatting. Cheers, buddy. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.